I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. I have new glasses. You do. They're very nice. Yeah. They took a little while. I haven't thought they're weird yet today. So I think I'm getting used to them. I think they make me look like someone who talks about art. Yeah, they do, actually. (laughs) Not as much as those, like, round ones you, you, like, tried on for a second. Like, those would make you just straight-up art professor. (laughs) Well, I I guess these are art podcaster glasses. Yeah. Yeah. Like, radio artist. So I guess it's time to make that uh, come true. Yeah. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about Impressionism and the early Impressionists. Ooh, I bet they had impressions. Yeah, uh, Monet did this great Eddie Murphy impression. Really? It was incredible. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to hear about that. (laughs) Let's start with the basics. What do you know, what are you familiar with about this art movement we're going to talk about? They painted stuff, and it's really pretty, and it's my favorite type of art. Yeah? Yes, I'd say it's my favorite art movement. Okay. Uh, And there's lots of it in the Art Institute. It is. We are lucky enough, we are blessed enough to live near uh, the Art Institute of Chicago, which has the greatest collection of Impressionist and post-Impressionist art outside of Paris. Yes, and it is amazing. So uh, it had been a while since we've done, like, an art episode, and I thought, why not talk about those galleries that we spend the most time in whenever we visit? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they're nice to look at. Mm Mm-hmm. They look cool. There's so so much going on. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, in order to talk about what happened, I guess we got to talk about the context in which it happened, right? That's generally how things go. I suppose. So uh, Paris in the 1860s. Fine art is controlled by the Académie des Beaux-Arts. Now, uh, this is going to be fun because I've butchered so many foreign languages on the show. I don't think I've done French before. Hey, it's time to do it. It's the first time for everything. I mean, it could be worse. I could be doing this. So uh, the Academy uh, was a learned society for promoting and curating the art of France. Like, um, it was formed in a merger of a few other academies early in the 1800s, but all of those had been founded in the 1600s. So, like, there's a long legacy of, of these people deciding what art is they had very long lives i mean if they found it then and they're the same people still doing it these ancient sages <laughs> uh but one of the ways they did they, they fulfilled their mission uh was the salon de paris art show featuring the paintings they found most significant and worthy uh the academy had a jury artists would submit their works to the jury and like okay this this not this yeah they were a little snooty but yeah, their their preferences were for traditional standards. There was a, a hierarchy of genre, which put the historical painting uh, at the top and the still life at the bottom. What did they have against fruit? They did not want fruit, <laughs> unless it was a sp- historically significant fruit. This banana is now in the trash. <laughs> that banana does not exist anymore. It is now historically significant. It was eaten by Louis II. It's very so significant. So historical. Also preferred religious subjects. So mm-hmm. maybe if Jesus ate the banana. Eve's apple is Jesus the one banana. fruit they were really down with. Like you could draw as many apples as you wanted as long as you said it was hers. As, as long as there were two naked people in a forest and a snake nearby, yes. 
It's what not really a still life ba- at that point. What if you wanted to add a banana to it? That would be pornographic. Ugh. Realistic and finished pa- images where you couldn't uh, see the brushwork at all. It just looked like... So, so you didn't really see a hand of the painter in it anymore. That was the the goal that was what they taught at the academy and that was what they revered and promoted at the salon and the salon was very important because it's how uh people got their notoriety like oh i'm a painter how many works have you exhibited in the salon uh yeah it's where wealthy people went to find painters they wanted to commission Mm -hmm. and so uh getting excluded was bad getting accepted but put in a a poor place just stuck in the corner somewhere was just about as bad but that wasn't the only way to paint part of the impressionist revolution was a technological change the invention of paint in tubes and the field easel right in the middle of the 19th century started a trend of painting in open air Uh, four art students, Claude Monet, Pierre-Auguste Renoir, uh, Alfred Sisley, and Frederick Bazile, showed, uh, shared that interest. Uh, they, they all studied under the same teacher, and they became friends. They started having meetings in the Café Gerbois, a, a bohemian café. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, about twice a week, uh, these meetings were often led by a, a more established painter uh, Edward Manet, and then Camille Pissarro, Paul Cezanne, uh, Armen uh, Guillemin, and other notable names joined the group. I'm sort of a, I mean, it's a social club, like they they weren't that rigid about it. (laughs) Uh, But these people would be the founding members and greatest practitioners of Impressionism or New Painting, which is probably a better name. We'll get into that. Okay. So the beginning of Impressionism. Uh, Gustave Courbet and the Realists had spent the earlier decade or more working against the conventions of the time. Gustave hated historical painting. He said uh, the only century a painter can really depict is the one in which he lives. Yeah. That's part of where realism got its, its whole thrust. And the new painting was really a continuation of that struggle and Courbet's achievements. Uh, the Salon of 1859 is famous for uh, uh, its reviewers and critics all agreeing that it showed the end of an era and no clear beginning of another. Great craft, but no great ideas. Aren't they a little dramatic? These are art critics in <laughs> Paris. Yes, they're dramatic. It's the whole. It's like, eat a Snickers, calm down. <laughs> Not the end of the world. But that cafe club is now beginning in their early careers, trying to get noticed, uh, trying, and of course, to get noticed, that means submitting to the salon and regularly being rejected. But what is Impressionism, right? Eddie Murphy, that's what she said. Yes, it is what Eddie Murphy does, and it is what is done to Eddie Murphy very often. Uh, It's also sort of hard to define as a technique or as a movement. They're sort of hand in hand. Uh, the, the visual style, the aesthetic, featured visible brush strokes and, and was all about capturing light accurately in all its complexity, uh, providing the artist's impression of a moment. So you're going to see a lot of dramatic sunsets, a lot of... Light coming in light, through windows. Very, very little use. Uh, and if you want to be strict about the definition, no use of the color black. Yeah. They use every <laughs> other color. For where it should be. 
color, uh, matted on color to uh, have contrast rather than other techniques uh, or of line used at the time. And shadows reflecting light off of nearby objects, even unseen objects, because, you know, it's all about capturing that light, right? Uh, Subjects were generally landscapes and scenes of common everyday life. But again, it's as much about forging an independent identity as artists outside the academy system as it was the work in that aesthetic style. Probably more so when you get into certain people considered impressionists. The, The big kickoff event came in 1863, the Salon des Refusés. Uh, the salon rejects Manet's The Luncheon on the Grass. Uh, it depicts a nude woman having a picnic with dressed men, and the jury's rejection letter condemned Manet for painting licentious nudity in a contemporary setting. <gasps> if you want to have naked ladies, they better be, like, in All ancient naked. Rome. And, yeah, the dude's got to be, like, Michelangelo's six-pack in it, too. Yep. We need equal nudity and equality for the nudes. And hopefully at least 400 years old. Contemporary nudity, that's, that's where it, part of the, the idea of the painting was to point out this, this weird double standard, this hypocrisy in, in art at the time. Well, here's the question. So if it's like a picnic by like outside. Yes. And no one was wearing clothes. How would you know it's contemporary? Yeah. It's I just mean, trees and plants. Be like, oh, yes, this is ancient Greece. Exactly. You, Picnic. You, you know that Luncheon on the Grass is a contemporary painting because of the clothes the men are wearing. So if it was equal nudity, no one would know. Yeah, you just give it a title that mentions, like, Cupid or whatever. You know it's contemporary. <laughs> but if it's secret, it wouldn't be a statement. That's true. And it's clear that Manet was trying to make this statement. Uh, the poses were taken from a Raphael engraving. Uh, the Academy loved Raphael and all the Renaissance masters, so the painting was sort of intentionally goading them. <laughs> Not only was Luncheon on the Grass rejected, two-thirds of all artists that submitted that year were rejected, and there was this outcry that reached the ears of uh, the Emperor Napoleon III. He wasn't really interested in avant-garde art at all, in care, but he was interested in making people think he, he was... Uh, a softer, more receptive emperor. One of the many sort of bones he threw to the liberal press and and the moderate Republicans was this salon. Uh, He decreed that there should be a simultaneous salon so that the public can decide for themselves and it would be filled with all other rejected art. So the Salon des Refusés opened featuring many Impressionist works uh, and was full of visitors. Hundreds of artists pulled their work from the show before it opened, though, because they feared their work would be put next to, you know, ugly garbage, which isn't the best. (laughs) People get rejected for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's because the art is just bad. That's true. That's true. But others pulled theirs because they didn't want to make an enemy of the salon jury for next year or the year after. They, they, they didn't want to go in on this statement of, of glory to the outsiders. <laughs> but still, visitors came in droves. Uh, visitors often laughed all through the galleries, but they were still there. Yeah. <laughs> and some did enjoy it. In the end, the Salon de Refusé was more popular than the Salon de Paris, 
um, no matter what the, the customers had in mind when they went, uh, and struck a blow at the Academy's monopoly on legitimacy and judgment. And it is seen, along with Manet's painting, as the beginning of modern art. Cool. There, there was another in 1864, but then they just sort of stopped, despite continued petitions, uh, one from Cezanne in 1866 and one from Basile in 1867. The 1867 petition and uh, accompanying protest was so strident that they were reported to the police to be monitored for, <laughs> for their activities. These artists, man. Little, I'm worried about them. They they really, really want people to look at their art, and I'm afraid they're going to break something. <laughs> uh, without a way to break into the mainstream, uh, our heroes just go back to doing their studies and trying to, to get sold so they can, you know, eat uh, and having their meetings to develop their, their ideas and, and their collaborations. Uh, art dealer Paul Duran Ruel met Monet and Pissarro when they were uh, exiled for a little bit in London in 1870 and bought some of their work. He began exhibiting early Impressionist art in his London and New York galleries, bringing them out of France to their first early adopters. He, he said once, the American public does not laugh, it buys. Yeah, they'll buy anything. <laughs> Have you seen some of the clothes they wear? All of our episodes about 1800s America makes it seem like a land full of crazy people. <laughs> kind of was. Yeah, uh, even though some of them are, are now able to, you know have a buck to their name. Uh, things don't change overnight. The salon remained the way to promote your art and get work, so the loose circle of artists decided to get organized. Organization! Uh, Monet, Renoir, Pizarro, Sisley, Cezanne, Berthe Morisot, Edgar Degas, who joins the story now, and some others founded the Société Anonyme Cooperative des Artistes Peintres Sculptures Graveurs. Good job. Also known as the Anonymous Cooperative Society of Painters, Sculptors, and Engravers. It was a completely meaningless, hollow name. Did they, like, abbreviate that shit? How? It would still take half an hour to say. I'm trying to, like, how can you just take the letters and, like, say it, but you can't. But that was in late 1873. They, they uh, formed this company so they could hold their own independent exhibitions. And to be a member, you had to stop submitting to the salon. Ooh. That was a condition of membership. But some people weren't happy about that. Oh, yeah. And others were like, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Fight the power. Uh, Manet, who... Um, we're going to get into it, but it's debatable whether he was a member of this group or not. Mm. Uh, he was certainly a modern painter, but was he an Impressionist? The debate rages on. Uh, he exhibited a piece called Le Bon Bac in the Salon earlier that year. And the new painters saw that uh, as a regression from their style back toward a, a mediocre, like, compromise with academy standards and that is just too large a price to pay like we're done with the salon if that's what it takes to get in we don't want to get in anymore so they staged the first impressionist exhibition it lasted one month in the spring of 1874 in a loaned upstairs space featuring over 200 works from 30 participants 
Eugene Baudin was uh, exhibited there. He was the only painter from the earlier generation. Uh, he, he was respected by these new artists for popularizing landscapes painted in open air. The critics, of course, arrived and had very little kind to say. The most famous review is an article from Louis Leroy in the form of a dialogue where an art student tries to understand their intent and is mm -hmm. driven mad. <laughs> I, it's a very it's it's a short article. It's in the the show notes. Please read it. It's very funny. <laughs> Why is there light there? I don't understand. By the end, he sees the the face of like a, a museum security guard uh -huh. and thinks it is a painting, but it's the worst he's ever seen. There's far too much detail. <laughs> Uh, the, the true masters would uh, suggest his entire face with only a single brushstroke. There's two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Good heavens. <laughs> uh, but that article is the first time the group were known as Impressionists. Leroy took the word from Monet's Impression Soleil Levant. The show did close at a financial loss. The company disbanded, and each member had to pay a share of the debt. Ooh. An auction of pieces was held to help make up some of the costs, and uh, in the end, the works went for an average of 100 francs. Now, to compare that, admission to this was 60 francs. Oof, people got some cheap art. So for a ticket and a half, you could have art nobody wanted. But now they want. These uh, exhibitions were held nearly annually, even with the official end of, of the unpronounceable company. The second was held in 1876, featuring 252 works divided by artist. It is remembered for two reviews. The first in the magazine Figaro, uh, Rue Le Pelletier is unlucky. After the fire at the opera, here is a new disaster befalling the district. <laughs> harsh. Very harsh. Now, the second was a leaflet printed by uh, the, the critic and writer Durante, The New Painting, that argues the artists are pioneers of a great artistic revolution. Yeah! Now, all through this time, even though popular opinion wasn't with them, there were a few writers that were. Durante is one. Zola is one. He was specifically a big Manet guy. But with him, the, the whole new painting trend got, got a backer. Mm -hmm. uh, the third was held in April 1877 with 230 works by 18 painters and the first to have Impressionists in the name. It was the Exhibition des Impressionists. Uh, the fourth exhibition was held in 1879 and called Exhibition of a Group of Independent Artists at Degas' Demand. Degas hated the term and refused to be labeled with it. Uh, and it made a profit, is the first one to do so, for the 15 participants. Uh, it went up at the same time as that year's Salon, featuring a few works by Renoir. Uh, Monet decides to try submitting to the Salon again, uh, and Degas is furious at Renoir and Monet for, like, abandoning their compatriots, their, their principles. Yeah, don't be suckers. The fifth exhibition has very few actual impressionists, if you define it by people who were, you know, there at the beginning, there at the first uh, exhibition. It's mostly just Degas' other friends. It's not so bad. <laughs> eh, he, has, he had some good friends. 
By now, the leading members were holding independent exhibitions of their own work alone, going solo, splitting up their separate ways. But there, there were eight total exhibitions, the last in 1886 heralded the Neo-Impressionism and Post-Impressionism. Uh, though they had gone their separate ways and followed unique paths, they had changed the course of art and founded a legacy. Cue credits! <laughs> so that's why we're going to take our break right now and yeah. be right back. have sort of a shape of the Impressionist movement, and we've mentioned some names that you're probably familiar with. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at the people specifically. Okay. In the, the most equitable of orders, alphabetical. <laughs> <laughs> that means we're going to start with Frederick Bazile. This is a name you probably haven't heard of, unless you are an art history person before, before hearing us talk about him. Mm -hmm. He's not a very famous one, and there's, there's a reason for that. Now, he was one of the founders of the movement and one of the most active in their early activism. If you remember 20 minutes ago, he was the one behind the uh, militant petition that got police attention. Uh, he was born into a wealthy family, and so he was able to support his friends in their careers, and his home became one of the centers of the movement. Before they had the Impressionist name, they, they were known as the... the Circle of, I forget, but it's the name of his neighborhood. It's the, the his neighborhood circle. Oh, okay. <laughs> because that's where they hung out. Now, evidence shows that he was probably gay. He joined the infantry during the Franco-Prussian War and was killed in the first day of battle. Oh. See, that, that's, that uh, explains some things. His small body of work is still really representative and really strong for, for that era. But he didn't live to see any of the any of the impressionist exhibitions or the the flowering and and development of the scene that he was central to. Yeah, quick quick end there. Yeah, Ugh. Uh, he did have two of his paintings featured in the salon uh, while he still lived, and his works were shown posthumously by his friends in the ex impressionist exhibitions. What? That's good. Good that friends. So that, that's the short and tragic tale of Frederick Bazile. Yeah. Uh, Mary Cassatt, the only American Impressionist, at least in France, and the most significant woman of the movement. I know her. Personally? Well, no. <laughs> but, like, I know her. I was telling you earlier about that HBO artist special show I remember watching as a kid, and she had an episode. Yeah. Uh, she had an interesting life. All, she always wanted to be a professional painter. Mm -hmm. And so she went to painting schools uh, where the women's classes were all about developing a nice hobby to attract a wealthy man. Yeah. Yeah. But she eventually struck it out on her own, uh, struggling with her father's like, I will pay for your rent. I will pay for your food. I will not pay for your paints and canvases. That sort of thing. Oof. Her early paintings, nearly all of them, were lost in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Aww. Uh, she tried to make it in France and was struggling against the Salon's bias against women painters, at least the ones who weren't the mistresses of jury members. 
Yeah. And because of this struggle, she was invited to, uh, uh, she, she became friends with Degas, and he invited her to exhibit with the Impressionists. Uh, she reinvented her style after being reinvigorated by this new community and seeing their exciting new work. Her, her Impressionist pieces are probably her most enduring to this day, even though she was really good before then too, frankly. Mm-hmm. One of her most famous pieces is The Child's Bath, which you can see in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah! <laughs> it's a great tour through the Art Institute in that movie. Yeah. Though those paintings are not in the same place anymore. No, not, not these days. Most of them moved. Except those windows. Those windows are, because they <laughs> it never moved them. It would be hard to move the windows. Where they, like, make out. Like, those those glass windows are still there. And they're in the most hidden spot in the entire museum. Is the back door that hidden? It's a door. If you're coming in the back door, you're not looking behind you as you enter. That's you're true. You're only seeing them if you're exiting through the back door. And they're also, like, hidden by a partial wall, so the light works better in them. Oh, but it works so well. It does. But, like, they're totally, like, hidden away. They're marked on your guide map. Go find them. Thank you. You're welcome. This is why you get guide maps. Yeah. Uh, Paul Cezanne, here's a a much better known name. Uh, He submitted work to the salon every year, but he only submitted his pieces most likely to shock and outrage the jury. (laughs) Good dude. Good dude. Like, his submissions were always an ironic, how do you like them apples, jury? (laughs) He was accepted once, though, in 1866, when a friend submitted a different painting on his behalf. (laughs) Like, no, really, this guy's actually very good. Here's one you'll like. (laughs) Uh, He was passionate, violent, rude. His early work was very dark and brooding, and and he saw it not as a a way to, like, bring beauty into the world, but as a way to exercise his moods and just, like, get it out of his head. That's a good way to do it. He's one of those guys. Uh, His childhood friendship with writer Emile Zola, who I mentioned earlier, is what brought the Impressionists one of their most notable advocates. Uh, It is unknown and, in my unqualified opinion, unlikely that Zola would have been a big supporter of these new painters uh, if he didn't grow up with Cezanne. Yeah. Uh, He became an Impressionist landscape painter after 1870, but was one of the most ridiculed of them. One of the reviews from the uh, uh, exhibitions singled out a Cezanne painting saying, This peculiar looking head, the color of an old boot, might give a pregnant woman a shock and cause yellow fever in the fruit of her womb before its entry into the world. That is dramatic. Eat three Snickers, dude. This episode brought to you by Snickers. Uh, They can send us free Snickers for free advertising. I don't mind. Now, Cezanne is most remembered for his post-impressionist and expressionist work. Uh, He he didn't really find a home until after the movement had blossomed and and moved on. Edgar Degas, who's been sort of haunting this episode. Uh, Like I said, he hated the term impressionist and preferred independent artist and considered himself a realist. A friend of Manet's, he had constant conflict with the other members of the group because he saw very little in common between his paintings and these uh, airy landscapes, though they were unified in their independent anti-academy stances. He mocked and belittled the practice of open-air painting. Degas, come on. (laughs) He's, of course, most famous for his painting of dancers, musicians, various showbiz types. Yeah. 
uh, the only artists of the Impressionist exhibitions to be considered important during the Impressionist exhibitions. <laughs> he was always a misanthrope, absolute in his opinions, known for his wit, but a very, very cruel one. But later in his career and, and in his age, he became a hardened anti-Semite. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Earlier in life, he, he would fire an assistant for being a Protestant, which everyone thought, oh, you Degas. But later, when he was trying to purge the art community of Jewish models, everyone's like, oh, oh, Degas, oh, hey. That makes me sad. Yeah, well, nobody's perfect, and some people are awful. Uh, Edward Manet, he never exhibited with the Impressionists and always argued that inclusion in the salon was the highest goal. You've got to take the fight to the, the highest battleground. After being refused exhibition in the salon of 1867, uh, because his earlier accepted paintings were too controversial, one called Olympia, which is a naked lady staring right at you, and yeah. it, it caused a fervor. Because she was probably a prostitute. They don't know that. Don't judge her. Don't you judge the naked woman. You don't know her. You don't know her life. But anyway, the, the, yeah, the, this Olympia caused an outrage. So they're like, okay, flat, no Manet this year. So in 1867, he set up an exhibition of his work outside, uh, a gesture that brought him into contact with the Impressionists. Like, hey, you had some good ideas, but now you're really doing it. You're with us now. You are our... Uh, establishment godfather. Uh, they influenced his later works as he moved toward lighter colors and backgrounds. He never gave up using the color black, but at least he didn't have black backgrounds anymore. His membership in the group is arguable, like I said, but his mainstream success was a spearhead for the Impressionist work and the political side of their work especially. Uh, whether he's an Impressionist or not, he is the father of modernism in painting. And now the other guy. The other one. Oh. One that trips people up. We've talked about Manet. It's Claude Monet. Monet. Mm -hmm. uh, the most representative of the Impressionists. He, he's the first one that came to mind, probably. Uh, if you picture an Impressionist painting, it is some dapply water lilies. Isn't it? Isn't it? Be honest. The room with the artist institute with all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the early 1870s, he and his wife were living in poverty so abject that once his paintings began to, to get notice and sell, uh, all of them in his possession were seized by creditors as assets. They, they were bought back uh, from those creditors by a friend of his, but that's just a fun anecdote I like. He saw everything through the lens of his art, which he considered both the joy and torment of his life. Quote, one day I found myself looking at my beloved wife's dead face and just systematically noting the colors according to an automatic reflex. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of his most personal and powerful pieces is a color study of his wife's death shroud. Goodness. It is striking. His first wife, that is. He eventually remarried uh, a widow who had her own children and their families blended and, and he, he lived a, a happy older life and eventually got renown in his lifetime that is even exceeded today. In that period, in the 1890s, uh, Duran Ruel had uh, greater success in selling Monet's work, which gave him the uh, uh, 
cash to buy the house he was renting and some extra land uh, by the side that he, he transformed into an outdoor studio, built up these gardens that he loved to paint. And that is when he began his most famous work, painting the same lily pond over and over under different lights uh, for different effect. They're really cool. They're really cool. The uh, haystacks. Mm-hmm. Those are his two, right? Yes. Because it's the same thing of like painting the same haystack in different light at different times of day. Mm-hmm. I love those. Uh, Camille Pissarro, the oldest member of the group, uh, Cezanne said he was like a father to me. He was the guy that got Cezanne to, to start doing Impressionist landscapes. Uh, he was also a mentor to Gauguin, Van Gogh, and Seurat. Uh, he's the only person to have exhibited in all eight Impressionist exhibitions. He's the most Impressionist. <laughs> uh, in 1870, he abandoned his home to run from advancing Prussian troops. Uh, hundreds of his canvases, uh, in fact, it's estimated he had about 1,500 in his place at the time, including 50 pieces of Monet's, were thrown into the mud by occupying troops who used his home as a butcher shop. Aww. Yeah, they, they used his canvases to wipe their feet uh, in, you know, crossing the, the muddy French terrain. Aww. So yeah, in, in that exile to London, having lost what would have been the foundation of Impressionism as we know it, he collaborated with Monet, and their style from then became Impressionism as we know it. So who knows what it, what it could have been. When he came back home of those thousand and a half, there were about... 40. He was a kind, caring man. He did more than anyone to mediate disputes within this loose group, and he was admired by all of them. So so he was like the the papa of the impressionists. Yeah. Like, don't you argue? Go to your room. (laughs) Yes. Go paint something. And the father of the post-impressionists as well. He was he was a papa to us all. (laughs) Pierre Auguste Renoir. Uh, most known for his nudes and appreciation of feminine beauty, but also for painting the, the most vibrant light and the most saturated color of the entire scene. Anytime somebody wears blue in a Renoir, that's a pretty yeah. painting. Yeah. During the Paris Commune, he, he was living uh, in communal Paris, and some members thought he was a spy and he was they were just going to dump him into the river. But then a leader recognized him as a man who had helped the cause earlier, like, no, 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 Renoir's with me. He's cool. Please do not throw him in the river. <laughs> During 1892, he developed rheumatoid arthritis, but continued to paint until his death. As his life went on, his hands became paralyzed, and he required the help of an assistant to place the brush in his hands. But that still never stopped him. Goodness. What about this whole movement? Why are we talking about it? Why do we remember it? What's the point? It's pretty. It is remarkably pretty. (laughs) But... It also grew beyond France. Impressionist communities uh, sprung up in Australia, in the UK, in America, brought back by Mary Cassatt uh, uh, very particularly. And uh, all the world's art communities. German Impressionism was a thing. Not, not as famous as German Expressionism, but hey, it was there. The Impressionist label was applied to music and literature with the same modernist aims. But by the turn of the century, post-Impressionism was the new avant-garde. Uh, some of the Impressionists joined that wave. Uh, like I said, Cezanne finally found the scene in which he belonged, uh, the, the mode that he really flourished in. 
But they were joined by Van Gogh, Seurat, Gauguin, uh, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. That's the aesthetic that I really click with. Like, I'm a post-impressionist yeah. as far as what I think I mean, is pretty. I like that stuff too. I love Van Gogh, but I, yeah, I love them. <laughs> but you can't talk about them without talking about this. It rejected the naturalist depiction of light and color and moved beyond uh, that and broadened the experimentation to new kinds of representation. Uh, Post-impressionism includes pointillism, symbolism, and other sub-movements. I mean, the, the George Seurat Sunday picnic painting. Yeah. Also heavily featured in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> the busiest room of the Art Institute. It is. It is always so packed there. Like, you will never be able to get a shot of that picture without Some, people. Somebody's head. Yeah. And if you're lucky, they'll be wearing a Red Wings jersey. So. <laughs> we should do that. Yeah. We should go in our jerseys. We should. We should do that. <laughs> That'd be good. Go Wings. But beyond their art movement, uh, the primacy of the salon was ended. Uh, art could be represented as an artist wished and judged by the public on its own merits. The salon was still biggest, but it wasn't the only game in town. Mm -hmm. With the success of their innovation and break from the salon, all modern art can be seen as a descendant of the Impressionists. Fancy statement there. And I'm making it. Bam. Yeah. Thrown the gauntlet, and a lot of art historians will back me up. Actual qualified people with degrees in this. Not just arty glasses. Not just the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> so, darling, what have you learned? Like, I've I've always known a, a bit about creation of this, and I'm going to give a lot of credit to, about that to those HBO artist specials, because they very much focused on the Impressionists. <laughs> and I, I think, thinking about it, actually, I think it was, because um, I was trying to remember before, like, the, all the stuff with, like, the salons forming, and I feel like it had to do with uh, Mary Cassette mm -hmm. uh, and her work getting in it. But yeah, so, like, I always knew a little bit about it, but we went much more in depth. I didn't know that Degas was a jerk. Yeah, that he was- That makes me sad. I mean, I kind of knew he was a jerk. He was kind of a jerk in that artist special but, to, like, no, the ballet dancer, but I didn't know. presented as the fun kind of jerk, not the Nazi kind yeah, of jerk. Yeah, I didn't know he was that type of jerk. Yeah. And that makes me sad, because I like his work. Well, now you can love Pizarro, because he's a friendly grandpa of art. Yeah. Grandpa artist. Did you learn stuff in this whole process? I never knew that... Impressionism was such a loose label before researching it's, this. It very much is. Like, these people didn't like each other that much, at least not that often. Yeah. And the, the borders are so fuzzy, and there's no... Who knows who they are? And and is it about their their views of curation, or is it about... The way they painted sunsets. Because you could be an impressionist and not ever paint a sunset, apparently. <laughs> I feel like that's actually very much a thing with, like, art movements around this time. Mm-hmm. We were talking about Dadaism. Dadaism comes in a little bit after this. Yeah, but they at time. least had a manifesto. They, they, had, had, they, they loved had manifestos were, out the ears. That's but. The thing. They all had their own manifestos. <laughs> but I feel like... There, there was no impressionist manifesto. They couldn't even agree on... The name. It was given yes. to them to mock them. Well, what I'm trying to say is that, like, the art movements, I feel like, around this time were very, like, 
there was such like a rush of people trying to like express themselves. Mm-hmm. It was all becoming, we don't want to make what you say we should make. Mm-hmm. We want to make our own thing. And it's not always about agreeing what it is, as long as we're not doing what they want. Yeah. There's That's, a... it's, it's about going against the man. <laughs> and sometimes and I, that leads to a lot of disagreements because you're like, yes, we're going to do this, but it's not always following the same ideology. I mean, maybe in future episodes we'll we'll build this bridge, but there's a clear legacy from the Impressionists to the Post-Impressionists to the yes. Surrealists to Dada. Yes. Yeah. And many other branches of that tree. Yes, because it, I mean, this, this <laughs> comes before it and stuff. I don't know. In art movements, though, all the time, there's going to be people who don't agree with other people. Yeah, they're, they're, they're like, a... fine. We'll do this, but I don't like what you actually do. I think your art is crap. I learned that French art critics can really write some insults. <laughs> Yellow fever in the womb. <laughs> Yeah. If we had like a sign off quote like we do in Sex Archie, it would be that. Yellow fever in the womb. Yeah. 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 Uh, but we don't. You know what we have instead? Uh, mailbag? Yeah. So let's have a quick break and we'll get to that. So many emails. So many. Y'all love paintings. That's right. Uh, the prompt for this episode was favorite painting. Yes. And y'all got some opinions. Yeah. And we're going to share them. Yep. So Leanne sent us an email. First off, they mentioned that we made them cry in our last episode about Jim Henson. It's okay. I was crying while we were recording it and while I wrote it. We can all cry together. Favorite painting would be Starry Night by Van Gogh. Leanne says, I know it's a kind of cliche, but the Impressionist style with the colors always really grabbed me. I like it, too. Yeah, thanks, Leanne. Final Gamer uh, just recently got into our show. So, hey, glad to have you. But he provides a uh, show suggestion about his home city of Dundee, Scotland, and uh, with a whole list of really strange things going on in there so maybe we're gonna get around to it thanks for that uh simon sent us an email wanderer above the sea of fog by casper david frederick uh is favorite painting Mm -hmm. uh loves that it's a striking image and you can like imagine yourself as the man looking Mm -hmm. um and it is a really really cool painting yeah so thank you Simon. if you've seen an action movie poster in the last two years you've seen this painting or you've seen something inspired by this painting. Yes, that is very true. <laughs> so thank you, Simon. Claritic writes back to us uh, to say that her favorite painter is H.R. Giger. Giger. You That's weirdo. That's a great name. You weirdo. Why? <laughs> it's good stuff. It is, if you're a creep. No. <laughs> I guess I am too. Yeah. Thanks, Claritic. Ludovico uh, writes in... To say they really enjoyed the last episode. Well, thank you. We enjoyed making it. Uh, And their favorite uh, painting is Goya's Saturno Devorando a un Hijo, or, you know, Saturn devouring his own son. And Ian wrote in to say the exact same thing. So y'all are on a wavelength. But Ian also provided some uh, uh, background to the painting itself. Goya has a notably dark and pessimistic 
time, both in his own life and his art, of course, which culminated in uh, 1819 at the age of 72, disillusioned by the political and social climate of his native Spain, his, his beloved Spain. Uh, he purchased an estate known as the Quinta del Sordo, or Villa of the Deaf, and he painted 14 works directly onto the walls of that house, which are known as the Black Paintings, the most famous of which is Saturn. Uh, they're all dark, twisted with morbid themes, and it's likely Goya never intended anyone to see them. Uh, he didn't talk about them. He didn't write anyone to say, hey, man, I made these great things. You've got to come down and look at my walls. They, they were just unknown until they were discovered about 50 years after his death which is when the paintings were transferred from the walls onto canvas and are now held in the Museo del Prado in Madrid, which is where you can see the originals. And I mean, we live in the era of the internet. You, you can look this up too. Yeah. It's a pretty famous one. It, yeah. It's the dude eating a little dude. I th you've yeah. probably seen it. Go Goya has some great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You weirdo. <laughs> what? I can like fancy... Water lilies and dark, morbid things. It's fine. <laughs> David writes in to say that his favorite paintings are uh, the Villa of the Mysteries. Frescoes painted onto the walls of this villa on the outskirts of Pompeii. The paintings themselves show a woman being inducted into a, a mysterious society through secret rites, probably uh, the Cult of Dionysus. Uh, and they're just gorgeous, preserved by spending thousands of years underground. Uh, he also attached some photos uh, of both these and a mosaic showing doggies. Doggies! So doggies! Very specific puppy pictures. Yeah. Thanks very much, David. Zach writes to say that his favorite painting is The Village Ba Game. It depicts a soccer game in Scotland in the town of Jedburgh between the Uppies and the Doonies. I swear I'm not doing a weird accent. That's how he wrote it. <laughs> there, there's a sense of comedy and character that's not often shown in classical art. In, in the fight over the ball, the uh, wives goading violence between the, the uh, participants, children laughing at the game, uh, and police trying to unsuccessfully calm down a rowdy fan. So, yeah, thanks, Zach. Udoi sent us an email. Uh, their favorite painting is Nighthawks. For them, it really uh, invokes a sense of serenity and tension uh, and loves the idea of uh, thinking about uh, who's that stranger? Does he have a Tommy gun? Am I the stranger wishing I had someone to talk to, etc.? Does he have a Tommy gun? Great question. That's what I ask myself every day when I walk into a diner. <laughs> well, it does hang in the Art Institute of Chicago. It does. So there's a chance he has a Tommy gun. Probably has a Tommy gun. Just based on that alone. Probably. Also loves the fact uh, that they read a long time ago, or a while ago, that um, Curtis Hansen uh, apparently carried a small print of Nighthawk uh, around when he directed the 1997 uh, L.A. Confidential mm -hmm. uh, film to express the atmosphere he wanted, <laughs> which is pretty cool. It's a good way to be like, this is what I mean. I'm these sad people without a door. <laughs> That's what I want. So thank you. Thanks, Udoi. Chrissy's favorite painting is uh, Monet's Water Lilies. Good choice. Uh, all 250 of them. That's a lot. That's a lot. 
She does mention uh, something, uh, a detail that I omitted, that Monet suffered from cataracts later in life. Mm-hmm. Now, he did have cataract surgery, and some people theorize that after the surgery, he might have been sensitive to ultraviolet wavelengths that most folks aren't. Mm. But that's yeah. weird speculation. Like, how would we even know? But it's a cool thought. It's a cool thought. <laughs> Her favorite puppet is Rigel from Farscape. Yeah, which yeah. is a, he's, he's a fussy little dude. Mm-hmm. And even further back, prompt she answers, is favorite superhero, the Robins, collectively, who have an interesting and complicated history. Uh, her favorite is Jason Todd, the second Robin currently operating as Red Hood, after he came back from the dead. Yeah. It is a complicated history, she did warn us. It's very complicated. Uh, of course, Dick Grayson is, is probably the most iconic and all Robins are really walking in the footsteps these days of Tim Drake, uh, the first to be a detective and the first to wear pants. Pants! Pants are good. I always liked Tim Drake, and I hated that they killed his dad, but that's my personal beef. Thanks, Chrissy. Uh, Flavo5 sent us an email uh, that they haven't really been interested in paintings, but they've been meaning uh, to get a start. So maybe all these people's ideas will give you a... Uh, some things to uh, yeah, Google. Yeah. Uh, they do have a favorite painting, however, though. Uh, a Sunday on Le Grain Jeté, because it's the subject of Sunday in the Park with George, one of their favorite musicals. Mm-hmm. So I hope you enjoyed it when we mentioned it a little while back. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Flavor 5. Uh, Caitlin writes in to say her favorite puppet is Mr. Squiggle, who came from the moon to and, and liked to draw. Mr. Squiggle. I don't, know I don't know what show you're referring to, but it sounds lovely. Yes. I love the name Mr. Squiggle. As for favorite painting, when she was a kid, she went on a trip to the Alice Springs area in Central Australia and got exposed to two uh, landscape artists. The first is Albert uh, Namajira, an Aboriginal watercolor artist who did amazing work to, to capture the beauty of the Australian outback uh, with these stunning watercolors. Uh, on the same trip, uh, they went to an art gallery called uh, the Panorama Guth, which had a piece of art on the top that comprised 33 canvases. If you stand in the middle, you, you look around you, and you have a full 360-degree view of the surrounding countryside uh, by Hank Guth, hence Panorama Guth. So that sounds amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Caitlin. Porin sent us an email. Uh, their favorite painting is Girl with a Pearl Earring, but any Vermeer painting will do. Has a fond, fond spot for portraits in general, and feels that when it comes to portraits in the classical style, you can't find one better than a Vermeer. Goes on in his email that he missed last week because of a typo in the email, and let me just say, I was concerned, so I could have, like, solved this problem of the typoed email. Thanks for checking in, Bert. <laughs> Uh, Bethany sent us an email. She doesn't have any cute puppy pictures, but she has a pic- had a picture of something else, and that was of Caleb and her getting engaged. Aww. Oh, congratulations! Just just so you know, we are really good wedding dancers. We're the best. If you need some like people to pump up your wedding party, like not actually your the people in your wedding, but like. Some guests that, like, keep the dance floor going. Mm-hmm. It's us. No one will ever be embarrassed. They'll just look at us instead and be like, it can't be worse than that. Hours of entertainment here. 
<laughs> it was congratulations, congratulations. you guys. Uh, Bethany also tells us that a favorite puppet uh, was probably something from Labyrinth. And a favorite painting uh, has a fond spot for Andy Warhol's work. Also uh, really likes Guernica by Picasso. So thank you, Bethany. And congratulations to you and Caleb. Congratulations. Thank you. Riv sent us an email. Uh, favorite painting is definitely Monet's The Magpie. Uh, tells a story of when they were uh, around 10 or 11. Uh, they went to Paris with uh, their family and went to many of the museums. The lone little black magpie uh, picture really uh, just spoke to them and is one of their favorites. Though recently they've also uh, found that Van Gogh's paintings um, really speak to them as well. Yeah. gets a special shout out because he didn't have any puppies to send, but they got a hedgehog. And let me tell you, hedgehogs are always welcome for pictures. <laughs> and you got a really cute hedgehog, and its name is Eliza, you guys. Eliza the Hedgehog. It's a good hedgehog. It's good. Thanks, like Riff. Alex and Faye write in uh, to talk about some paintings. The first that comes to mind for Alex is Self-Portrait of the Artist in the Guise of a Mockingbird by uh, Joseph DeCruy. It's the it's the meme picture with the guy, the old timey guy pointing at you, like instruct me how to Douglas, you know that that sort of thing. It's that painting. Of course, Faye does have a a love of art history, and uh, so that makes this one a bit tougher for her to to pick a single one. Uh, she enjoys Georgian portraits for their coded symbols, but living and studying in Derby in the East Midlands introduced her to the artist Joseph Wright, uh, famous for his use of light in his work, and and perhaps the most famous and recognizable picture of his and and. Faye's eventual pick for favorite painting is An Experiment on a Bird in the Air Pump, which has a number of people gathered around an old-timey science experiment. Uh, it looks sort of photographic with the way the light from the table and the moonlight streaming in illuminates the faces of the onlookers. Uh, from the fascination of the men to the despair of the little girls, it is a moment frozen in time and beautifully lit. Thank you, Alex and Faye. And that is all of our emails. That's all So of it. many. Whew. You guys really liked that prompt. What's next episode's prompt, dear? Next episode. Next episode's prompt is favorite play or musical based on or inspired by real events. Yeah. So so we had favorite based on a true story movies before. Uh-huh. And now we want the stage version. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I, I can't wait to find out about that salesman that really did die. Those two mice and a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, that was a novel. Yeah, but it's not, yeah, that's true. That was a novel. That one doesn't count. <laughs> but in any case, we look forward to hearing about it. Yeah. And where can people send those? You can send those to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Your prompts, your questions, your show suggestions. Your puppies, your hedgehogs, whatever. Whatever you want to share that you think we might talk about in this segment. If you want to tell us you got engaged to someone too, like, feel free. We will... <laughs> We are excited for you mm -hmm. all and what's going on in your lives. And uh, you can also get in touch with us on Facebook. Uh-huh. On Instagram. Uh-huh. On Twitter. Uh-huh. And those are all at History Honeys. And we love uh, to hear from you. We, we love seeing engagement on those platforms. Uh, while you're out reaching out and touching somebody, uh, it would be really helpful if 
Oh my. You told me to reach out and touch someone, and you're the only one here, so I am touching you. Well, the next thing I want you to do, since you're so <laughs> suggestible, is leave us a, a review and rating on iTunes, because it helps us so much. Mm-hmm. And while you're at it, tell a friend. Tell anyone you meet in your everyday life. Normally, I give you a list. Right now, I don't got one. Someone's sleepy. I'm tired. So yeah, go tell people, okay? Do that. Over the hills and far away. Uh, we, we love hearing from our new <laughs> listeners. And while we're at it, should uh, we mention our other project? Might as well. Uh, Sex Archie's never went away. Nope. But the show is back now, so you can catch up with our uh, bonus episodes that we recorded during its hiatus. Mm-hmm. And the next one that comes out, the next Sex Archie that comes out after this History Honeys... I'm sure will be a barn burner. Yes. So feel free to check that out if you like. Mm-hmm. Again, most listeners don't watch the show, so don't be intimidated. Uh, I'm sure some listeners, if they watch the show, wouldn't even like it. Just check it out. It's a separate thing. It's fun. Yeah. We have fun. I, I, I really enjoyed our last episode. Uh, yes. Uh, the most recent episode, bonus episode two, predictions, was great. Uh, we, we got some letters in from names you might recognize mm-hmm. as History Honeys listeners. I also had a great time digging on the social media. That was the best part. We, we talked about predictions and other ideas from Instagram posts. Yeah. Anonymous teenagers. It's an interesting place. It's a scene, it's let me tell thing. you. And I don't fully understand it because I'm too old. <laughs> Hashtag bughead, baby. <laughs> So yeah, we'd really appreciate it if you check that out. We we enjoy putting that out as well. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Do good in the world. That's what I have to say. Yeah. Pet, a, pet pet some animals. Bring a little light into the shadows, like an impressionist would. So you're telling people not to be Goya, no, but to, to 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 be Monet. Yes. Be Pizarro. Be a friendly grandpa. <laughs> grandpa it up at everyone. Mm-hmm. It'll be a good one. I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And history's better with with your your honey. honey.